Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, August 25th, 2017. Yeah, watching the news. Harvey heading to Texas. Hmm. We'll talk about what the televangelists have taught and how it doesn't jive at all with, at all with what the scripture says. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and uh, we use this program as an opportunity to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, <gasps> self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's sadly how that always ends up working out. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, doctrine is teaching, yeah, that's what it is, uh, being put out there is not even remotely biblical. In fact, far from it. And uh, oftentimes, that false doctrine, if you correct it, if you challenge it, you're not going to be shouted down by pagans. No, if you challenge that false doctrine, there's a really good chance you're going to be shouted down or, um, let's say, harassed on social media, not by pagans, but by Christians. Yeah, that's kind of the strange thing about what's going on nowadays. Now, uh, today, uh, Hurricane Harvey is uh, barreling towards uh, the, the good people of the state of Texas, and so they are in our prayers. But let me remind you, that the the Word of Faith heretics and uh, people like uh, Gloria Copeland, Kenneth Copeland, and others in the NAR have taught publicly that Christians supposedly are supposed to have control over the weather. The problem is, is that nowhere in Scripture does it say that Christians have this authority. Nowhere. No, it doesn't say it even in one verse. Um, and as a result of it, um, yeah, when uh, Christians um, ha- have major weather events heading towards their cities and things like this, um, they are tempted because they've been taught this false doctrine to really give Christianity a black eye, all in the name of demonstrating the power of the Lord. Let me explain. Pretend you're at work. Yeah, yeah. So there you are at the office, and you just happen to live in Houston, right? 
and you work in Houston, and in the office you have, well, that guy. Yeah, that guy who is actually part of some weird NAR charismatic church of some kind, right? And this fellow has bought hook, line, and sinker the false doctrine being spewed by people in the uh, in the in the NAR or televangelists and whatever that Christians are supposed to have control over the weather. We'll give you an example of this in a minute. And uh, so he says, "I want to demonstrate for you the power of Jesus." And sitting there going, "Oh wow, he's going to demonstrate for us the power of Jesus." He says, "Christians have uh, authority over the weather." And, you, and the people at work are going, they do, really? And he says, yes, so walk, walk with me out to the parking lot. And so they walk with him out to the parking lot, and, you know, there's Hurricane Harvey uh, heading towards um, the, um, you know, the, the city of Houston. He says, I decree and declare and take power and authority over you, Harvey, and I'm sending you back to where you came from. And uh, everyone sits there and goes, that's it? Yeah, that's it, yeah. So this fellow has done this, and um, then Hurricane Harvey, you know, look, I mean, it really looks like it's going to make a mess of Texas, comes barreling in, and nothing seems to be stopping it, right? Yeah. And uh, and so now what do people think? The, the Christianity's complete quackery. Mm-hmm. Because this fellow has bought into the false teaching of what's being said out there. So real quick, what we're going to do, we're going to do a quick tele-evangelist update. And then today we're going to do a light episode. We're going to continue as I work my way through the book of 1 Samuel. Today we're going to be looking at the anointing of David as the king of Israel, uh, the shepherd king. And oh man, it just points all to Jesus and the typology and the connections between Jesus and David here are amazing. They are amazing. But I I do feel that it behooves me to um, put this uh, other piece in there. Now, a little bit of a heads up. uh, You know, I'm looking at my schedule for the next few weeks, maybe about three or four. Um, I have got, <laughs> I've got a, a bottleneck in my schedule caused by, uh, an increase of activity within my other vocations. And so li- literally, uh, realistically for the next few weeks, I'm going to probably have to have a light episode on Friday as well. And hopefully by the middle of September ish, somewhere in there, uh, we'll be able to get back to a regular schedule. But real quick, since we're going to kind of do two things today, uh, we're going to do that money grubbing televangelist update. Let's uh, uh, do this. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira. Now the Deutsche Mark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make the splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, 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 money. Everyone must hanger for the butchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, 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 round. You can keep round, your Marxist ways, but it's only just a place. For it's money, money, money makes the world. All right, so we're going back in time just a little bit and reminding you of the false doctrine taught by, well, the Copelands. 
Uh, this is from the Believer's Voice of Victory television program. We're going to be listening to Gloria Copeland wax eloquent about apparently the power that Christians have over the weather. And we're going to note, uh, like we've already noted, this is not taught in Scripture. And, you know, this is the kind of false doctrine that literally gives Christianity a, a really bad name. And yet, over and again, the people who point out that this is false doctrine, they're the ones shouted down by Christians and told, be quiet because unbelievers will not want to become Christians if you, if, because of the disunity in the body of Christ. I would argue, yeah, no, you know, people are unbelievers because they're born dead in trespasses and sins, and it's false doctrine like this. That makes them think that Christians have lost their minds and you know, prevents them from actually giving a, a real look at who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Yeah, just listen in. Here we go. No, you're, the, you're supposed to control the weather. Yeah, n- no, you're not. I mean, Ken's the primary weatherman at our house, but when he's not there, I do it. You can see what's happening out there. It shows just like they have on at the weather, like on the news. I mean, he's got the computers, got the current weather on it and all that for flying. So uh, sometimes I'll hear something. I'll hear the thunder start. Maybe he'll still be asleep. And I'll say, Ken, you need to do something about this. <laughs> and knowing that. But you are the one that has authority over the weather. One day, Ken and Pat Boone, we were in Hawaii at their house, and we were, they were sitting outside, and there was a weather spout out over the ocean. And that's like a tornado, except it hits the water. And so they were sitting there, and they just watched it, rebuked it. It never did anything. One day, I was in the airplane in the back, and my little brother was in the back with me, and Ken was up front flying. And we were not in the weather, because we don't fly bad weather. But we, we could see the weather over here. And I looked out the window, and that tornado came down just like this, down toward the ground. And Ken said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You get back up there. So this is how I learned how to talk to tornadoes. I saw this. <clears throat> you learned how to talk to tornadoes. Okay, some say tornado, some say tornado. And that tornado went, whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah, sure it did. Even while I was watching him, my little brother was not a devout Christian at that time, and that was really good for him to see. Right, yeah. And yet, um, how many people How many people are going to see Christians claiming, well, because they learned from Gloria and Ken Copeland and other people that uh, Christians are supposed to have authority over the weather, they're going to go out there and demonstrate for their unbelieving, you know, Friends and family members, you know, the power of Jesus and how we can take authority over these things. And it ain't going to happen. And uh, when it doesn't happen, <laughs> it's not going to be a good thing for them as far as Christianity is concerned. So you're the weatherman. You get out there or the weather woman, whichever it is, and you talk to that thing and you tell it you're not coming here. I command you to dissipate and you get back up there in Jesus name. Yeah, so you know, yeah, just tell 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 Hurricane Harvey you need to dissipate and head back out to the Gulf of Mexico. I don't think that's going to stop it. And keep in mind the Copelands live in the great state of Texas, which is about to become a very very wet place to live, but oh man, very sad. So, you know, one of the reasons why I do what I do here at Fighting for the Faith is because scripture explicitly says that the that the body of Christ is not to permit false doctrine being taught in it 
And nobody challenges these people. They always challenge the people like me who challenge the, the Copelands and people like them. And, uh, and they'll say, oh, you can't, you, you shouldn't be doing this. You, it makes Christianity look bad when you, uh, you, you call out false teachers. I would argue, uh, this is a clear example of where Christian, Christianity and Christians look really bad when they don't call out false teachers and false teaching like this. I mean, how many people, how many Christians in the weeks ahead during the hurricane season? I mean, yeah, we got the Atlantic hurricane season is in full swing. I mean, it's just a matter of time before the big old hurricane forms out in the Atlantic, right? And yeah, you know, there has been a few years since I, we've had one of them hit landfall. But I mean, you imagine somebody in like North Carolina or Georgia or something like that with a you know an Atlantic hurricane barreling towards them, and Christians out there on the beach saying, "We send you back," and it doesn't turn back. Yeah, yeah, I think you get the idea. It makes Christianity look like total quackery. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, is that this doctrine is quackery and it's false and it doesn't demonstrate the power of Jesus. It demonstrates the deception and lunacy of false doctrine. We should not have any tolerance for these doctrines among us. Just saying. All right. So uh, today, light episode, uh, we're going to switch gears here. Talk about it. We're going to take a hard, hard turn here. And uh, we're going to be listening to uh, t- uh, the rest of the program today, a uh, lecture I recently delivered at Kongsvinger Lutheran Church, Oslo, Minnesota. And uh, the name of it is The Shepherd King, as we uh, look at First Samuel and the anointing of David as the uh, king of Israel. Here we go. Okay, today we begin in our study of the kingdom of God to begin to address the topic of the second king of Israel. If you remember, as we've been working our way through 1 Samuel, the first king of Israel um, has turned out to be, how shall we say, a bit of a mess. A bit of a mess. This is a fellow who, when he became king, he was tall, he was handsome, he was rich, and he had all of the qualities that we as uh, sinful human beings love to see in our leadership. We love to pr- let the, li- the pretty people who are wealthy, rule us. That's kind of how that works, is, does it not? And this continues today. This, this, if you think about it, it really does continue today. Um, now, they don't have to rule over us politically, although from time to time we elect them into office. But oftentimes, the pretty people uh, rule over us in our desire to be like them. Now, I've always had this problem, and I, I'm not sure if this applies to all of you, but I've never been... Of runway model material. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so thumbing through the latest edition of Gentleman's Quarterly, it's not going to help. I'm just saying, it's just, it's not going to help. So that being the case, you know, it's fascinating though, but Vogue magazine, Gentleman's Quarterly, uh, Esquire, you know, all of these different mag- fashion magazines that are designed to really basically strive after this attainment of good looks, of wealth, of influence, of affluence, that, you know, that somehow the sum worth of a human being is in the clothes they wear, the amount of money they have in their bank, the parties they can throw, the house that they own, the car that they drive, the watch that they wear. Now, my watch should say geek, but that's a different story. 
And so this is how we operate. And so the first king of Israel fits perfectly into this mold. He's got everything going from, but the thing he doesn't have going for him in relation to the kingdom of God is what? He doesn't really have faith. He doesn't trust. He doesn't obey the word of God. When given explicit instructions by God, he goes a different direction altogether. And then when he falls short and he's confronted with his shortcomings, he blames others for his sin. And so God has rejected him. He has done things that are not for the king to do, sacrificing animals. He did not dispense his duties against the Amalekites, did not dispense them at all. And as a result of it, God has rejected him. So you kind of think of it this way. In Scripture, there's the first Adam, and then there's the second Adam. First Adam is the one who plunged us into this mess. The second Adam is Christ, and he's the one who's got us out of it. In the kingdom of stories of Israel, Saul is the first king, and he is like the first Adam. The second king to come along now is going to be like Christ. So in his life, we're going to see play out typological things that make a beeline direct, that's about Jesus kind of thing going on. So we begin the story of David with these words. Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Wow, is that sentence packed. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now remember, as we were working our way through the Old Testament in Genesis and Exodus, we were always noting up to what point had the scarlet thread of Christ's genealogy come to. We noted that it, it came through Adam, on into Noah, then to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and their descendants. And so up to this point, where is the scarlet thread of the Messiah come? David. He has no sons at this point. The genealogy has come to this point and no further. And so within David, he, he is... Within him is the unborn great-great-great-great-great-grandson of his, Jesus Christ. And as his lineage unfolds, it's going to come to Jesus. But he, along the way then, is a major pinnacle within Scripture. You kind of think in Scripture you have these like real high points. So you're going to have a high point with Abraham. You're going to have another high point with Moses in the Exodus. And then this is a ginormous high point, the story of King David. And you'll note that the Bible spends an inordinate amount of time in the details and life and ups and downs, persecutions and triumphs of David. There are few people in Scripture written about as much as David. And it's also important for us to remember, David is a biblical author. Which book did he write? Much of the Psalms, right? They're attributed to David. So let's kind of keep all of that in mind. So in the sentence here, 
I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. That almost reads like a double entendre when you got the whole story. Has God provided for himself a king among the sons of Jesse? Oh, you betcha. Absolutely. But the real king that he's provided for himself from among the sons of Jesse is Jesus Christ. So this is, this is almost, like I said, a, a double entendre. God here, you can almost see that he's, it's a little bit of a play on words. And that's really kind of the gist of all of this. These stories ultimately are pointing us directly to Christ. And so in bold relief, type and shadow, we have the story of Jesus. It's amazing when you start to consider the implications of it. So I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, a good way to think of it is this. Um, oftentimes, Christians have a difficulty putting together the Old and the New Testament. And where Christians specialize is in the New Testament. They're, they don't know what to do with the Old. And so, you know, how do you kind of put the two books together? Um, it's similar to when I was growing up as a kid. Um, we had the original Star Wars trilogy. And I hope some of you have seen these movies so I don't look totally nerdy. <laughs> you knock it off. <laughs> The, the, what was really weird, I remember when I was a kid, oh my, I was in grade school, and Star Wars came out, and it was episode four, A New Hope. And I saw it at Grauman's Chinese Theater. I mean, it was, I mean, it was mind-blowing. And so you get the story of Luke Skywalker and, the, and, and this rebellion against, you know, against the evil empire and Darth Vader and all this kind of stuff. And as the stories, as the movies progressed... You, you, are, you begin to realize, because they divulge this idea, that there's a huge backstory that you don't know about that is clearly having a bearing on the stories that are playing out. So it begins with episode four, goes to episode five, goes to episode six. They should have stopped there. It would have been just great. But when my son was my age, when the first Star Wars movie came out, they came out with episode one of Star Wars and began to tell the backstory of Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Old Republic and, all, and the Clone Wars and all this kind of stuff. I don't think they did such a hot job. I'm not a big fan of the one, two, and three. Anyway, but the idea then is, is that when you know the full story together, you, you're able to really kind of appreciate all of the different nuances that appear in the first set. So oftentimes when we look at Jesus, we as Christians focus in on New Testament. You know, we start with John or we begin with one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark or Luke. And, and then we look at how the, the book of Acts and how the church progresses. And then we get into the epistles and then you throw in the book of Revelation, which everyone has a difficult time understanding what that book's about um, you know, because it's so wild in its, um, in its imagery that it produces. Right and there, Jesus appears with a sword coming out of his mouth. And so you, know, you put us all together, and you, you kind of got a weird picture of Jesus. But if you want a fuller picture of Jesus, you have to go into the backstory. And the backstory re- requires you have a good, firm grasp on the story of David. And it's critical for properly understanding the, the biblical doctrine of the kingdom. So you get where I'm going here? So that being said, the story continues. I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehem height, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. That's, that's a legitimate concern. You know, this is going to, you know, <laughs> when somebody is reigning as king in a kingdom and somebody else is usurping and claiming to be king as well, that's called treason. 
So Saul, Samuel's like putting this, the, this all together. And what's really fun is that God himself comes up with the pretense to kind of give him, you know, to protect him. So the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Huh, what town is that again? Bethlehem. First time it's really making a big appearance, right, in Scripture. Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. One of my favorite lines from the movie Airplane is, don't call me Shirley. Yeah. I picked the wrong day to... Yeah, right, right. I picked the wrong day to stop sniffing glue and all that kind of weird stuff, right? But yeah, in the movie Airplane, you know, there's, you know, there's some kind of danger. And he says, you know, Surely, you know, surely you jest. No, I do not jest. And stop calling me surely. But anyway, yeah. so surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. But Yahweh looks on the heart. Yahweh looks on the heart. And we're going to learn as the story of David progresses that David, unlike Saul, is a great man of faith. That's what he is all about. He really has amazing trust in Yahweh. So God looks on the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel, and he said, hmm, Neither has Yahweh chosen this one. So then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, No, nah, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, Well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Then get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And Yahweh said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him, and again, these are plays on you know, the Hebrew word Mashiach. The, the verb here, Mashiach, means to anoint. Anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of Yahweh rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. As we're looking at this text, this is the first appearance of, really, the shepherd king in Bethlehem. And when, I mean, just what we've read is so prophetically significant as it relates to Christ. It's literally amazing when you consider the implications of it. Um, 
let's start, though, by considering the story itself and how it's often misread today. All right? if I've, I've actually reviewed sermons on this text by seeker-driven, purpose-driven, vision-casting leaders. And usually the way this sermon is preached on this text, it goes something like this. You see, just like David had a big dream destiny that God wanted him to fulfill, and nobody even thought that he was going to be anything. He was, he was going to amount to nothing. Where was, where was David when the feast had been called together? Where was David? He wasn't even invited to the party. He was off tending the sheep, which is one of the lowliest of low jobs back in the ancient world. Poor David. Nobody saw the potential within him. And so, but God did. God saw the potential with him because God looks in the heart. You see, God looked in his heart and goes, oh, potential. And so you too, you need to not be discouraged that other people don't see the potential that you have. Don't worry, God sees it. (laughs) Of course, when you hear a sermon like that, it's like, how do you know I'm not like Eliab or Abinadab, one of the guys who got rejected? Because, <laughs> like, when I look in my heart, it's like, Ugh. How, how do you know I didn't end up, you know, like one of these guys who were cast aside? It's, they never preach on those guys. How many of Jesse's sons got reject, no, fail? I mean, so how come they never got to experience their dream, destiny, purpose thingy? Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So, and when you, when you t- twist a biblical text like this, what you're doing is you're making it about yourself and you're making it about promises that God has not given. A few weeks back, I gave a lesson on the fact that God has not called us to have a purpose, but he's called us in Christ to good works. Big difference between the two. A f- one who's focusing on fulfilling his purpose is really working on fulfilling himself. It's very narcissistic. But the one who is excelling in good works and they're done for the purpose of neighbor. They're not done for the person doing them. They're done for the person who's in need. That's the idea. Does that make sense? So that completely misses the point. The Bible doesn't promise that you have some grand dream destiny thingy that God's going to have you fulfill. Far from it. Instead, Scripture's very clear that we are created in Christ for good works. But this text is not about any of that. This text is about Christ. This text is in type and shadow, pointing us to Christ. And King David is a man of faith. And it's important to note, he's, kinda has, he's got a good bloodline at this point. It reads quite well. In fact, we would be, we would be good here to review a few things in, in light of this passage as far as the, um, as far as the cross-references. I want to start, though, with Isaiah 53. And I want to show you kind of an idea in Isaiah 53 that I think is fascinating when compared with this text. Isaiah 53, which is the suffering servant song, one of them in the the book of Isaiah, here's what it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Isn't it fascinating that there is Eliab, and Samuel sees him and says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. He's like, nope. And David is described as ruddy. He's not beautiful. He's not a GQ model. 
He's handsome. He has beautiful eyes. But that's kind of interesting. And the reason behind it is because of what Isaiah says here talking about Jesus. Jesus, like David, is not a man who would end up with a shirtless Photoshop shot on the cover of GQ. That's not what Jesus is about. Jesus is literally kind of a plain, ordinary man, which gives me hope. I'm just saying. So that's kind of one point, data point, to consider in this. But let's take a look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Let's review a few things here. Starting about half, we'll start with uh, verse... uh, Let's go ahead and start with the verse 1. and kind of work our way through because it goes pretty quick. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Isn't that interesting? Matthew's genealogy kind of focuses in on Jesus' lineage. And right from verse 1 is picking up on that he's a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. Pinnacle stuff here. So Matthew continues, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. We've heard all their stories. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And I love Matthew's genealogy. Watch the focus. That Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. If you remember the story, it's one of the more wicked stories in Scripture. Zerah is conceived by an act of prostitution act of prostitution between Judah and Tamar. And yet she's mentioned here in Scripture. Isn't that interesting? And Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abinadab. And Abinadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So if you are familiar with the story, the children of Israel and their conquest of Canaan, first town to fall is what? Jericho. Jericho. And we all know the story. The children of Israel and you know, basically circled the city once a day for seven days. And then they circled it again on the seventh day. Blew the trumpets. The walls came crashing inwards. The only people to survive were Rahab and her family, And what was hanging outside of her window at the time of the attack? Garlic bread. And what I love about the story is that it doesn't tell us the details, but we know what happens shortly after. Shortly after the fall of Jericho, what happens to Rahab the prostitute? Doesn't the genealogy tell us? She marries a a fellow. Who's Who's the fellow she married? Oh, don't be shy. Shout it out. Salmon. So Salmon was what at the time he married Rahab? Salmon was the guy who was up the terminus up to that point of the line of Jesus. So where's the Messiah at the fall of Jericho? The Messiah is with Salmon. And what happens is after the fall of Jericho, the prostitute marries the Messiah. You see it? Or we should say the ex-prostitute, the forgiven prostitute, marries the Messiah. 
You fill in the biblical data and you think, oh my goodness, that's an amazing story. Amazing story. And it's, if you, if, when you put the details together, you realize that is, in a sense, a picture of Christ and His bride. We were all sinners and idolaters, soiled with sin. Idolatry in Scripture and over again is, is, is likened to, uh, well, prostitution. We, each of us were spiritual whores. And it's a terrible thing to say it like that, but it's, it's, you have to kind of say it that strong. But what has Christ done? He has washed us with water and the Word. He has sanctified us, taken away our sin, and clothed us in His righteousness. And so He has made us the bride of Christ together. And you can sit there and say, it's similar to that. Jesus choosing the bride of Christ to be His bride. The bride who was sinful and soiled and dirty and guilty forgiven, made clean, clothed in a beautiful garment. So same idea here. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Quick break and we come back. The balance of today's lesson on the shepherd king and the anointing of King David as the king of Israel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Already? Right, uh, package for you, ma'am. Just uh, sign there. Oh dear, I was expecting something a bit larger. Is that all there is? Uh, afraid so, ma'am. Uh, sorry to disappoint. Oh, <laughs> no worries. I'm sure more will be on the way. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, have a good day, ma'am. I wonder what's in here. I do hope I haven't been ordering chia pits in my sleep again. Oh, it's a DVD! Oh, this had better not be another one of those Lectio Divina thingies. Hello! If you are watching this, it means that you have purchased the post-apocalyptic preparedness package. You have bought the... Bronze Edition. Bronze Edition? Please don't be alarmed, as your full order will be arriving within the next few weeks. Next few weeks? The end of the world might have happened by then. I should have paid the extra $99.99 for the faster shipping. The purpose of this DVD is to catalog everything that you will be receiving in the... Bronze Edition. ...package, along with information on our other great offers. Looks like there are different chapters to select from. Let's see here. 
toiletries, clothing, nourishment, shelter, sanitation, medicine, gardening, energy, communication, weaponry, underwater basket weaving. Okay. Additional accessories, expansion packs, and ooh, play all. <laughs> I'll choose that one. As you know, God has given us signs in the sun, moon, and stars that the end times are approaching. After the destruction of your country, the everyday comforts you currently enjoy will have been disintegrated by God's judgment. By investing in our merchandise, you have proven to God that you have audacious faith in his prophets, seers, and visionaries. Now we're ready to dive into the crucial survival equipment you have purchased. Well, I'm certainly glad that God knows I'm faithful. No doom and gloom for me. You have purchased the... Bronze Edition. Please pay attention to which items you will be receiving. I have my notepad ready. Part 1. Toiletries. In the Bronze Edition, your toilet paper will be made from the finest scratchy banana leaves and corrugated tree bark. Toilet paper made from scratchy banana leaves and... Wait, what? In the Silver Edition, your toilet paper will be made from all-natural, organic, recycled plastic. In the Gold Edition, your toilet paper will be made from hand-quilted spider silk. It's can't be right! In the bronze edition, you will receive a block of wood with bristles and a baking soda solution for maintaining healthy teeth and gums. Here's a pro tip. You can use your own hair as dental floss. In the silver edition, you will receive... Oh my! I sat on the remote! It's fast-forwarding! Um, uh, where's it? Done play button! Oh, oh, wait, there it is! Part 5. Nourishment. In the bronze edition, you will receive 24 cans, each containing one month's supply of beans. As a nifty space saver, the cans are first filled with fresh river water, then topped off with dehydrated beans. This way, you'll have your food and water in the same convenient package. Strainers and can openers will not be included. The silver edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. The Silver Edition will provide dried fruit and vegetable packets along with a 36-month supply of chicken noodle soup and 50 gallons of distilled water. What? How is that even fair? Gold Edition buyers will be given 50 crates of freeze-dried astronaut dinners. Flavors include chicken corn on blue, lobster surprise, filet mignon, oysters, caviar, and steak. Cheese platters will be served on the side of every dish. Water will come in glass bottles, along with a complimentary water fountain with color-changing LEDs. This is ridiculous! I can't believe I wasted my cat's life insurance on this! What else is in this stupid thing? Gold Edition shelters have been constructed by our teams ahead of time for you. You will be getting your maps and keys to access your top-secret bunker in the coming weeks. Complimentary bouncy castles and jacuzzis can be found next to the theater room behind the bowling alley. In the Silver Edition, you will get him and her matching gardening gloves. For prosperous crops, this edition includes an inflatable, radiation-proof greenhouse. Part 33. Communication. Now pay attention, bronze buyers. Using two of your Space Saver nourishment cans, you can attach this six-foot string to each side to make an electricity-free telephone. As a special promotion, we will also be giving out 12-foot strings for long-distance calls. Gold Edition weaponry includes six holy hand grenades, one hideaway moat, and... I can't believe this! They didn't say anything about different editions on the website! How, how do I upgrade? I can't survive with any of the useless junk they're sending me! 
What are the shams of these sleaze balls running? I could have sworn she said something about expansion packs. Additional accessories, such as a Holy Ghost decoder ring or a church box CD, can be purchased individually for $24.99 each. Please wait for our full accessory list. Ah! I don't want to hear any more of this rubbish! Part 104. Expansion Packs. Our hottest item is the Mr. Sparkle Party Pack. This little number comes with four sparkle suits, one disco ball, seizure-inducing strobe lights, and confetti poppers. It's fun for the whole family. I want my money back. This is an absolute outrage. I can't believe I fell for this ruse. This concludes our DVD presentation. If you have any questions, please call the number not located at the bottom of your screen. And remember that all payments are non-refundable and non-negotiable. Thank you, and have a wonderful apocalypse. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Morning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that all of Scripture is actually about Jesus. Because it is. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you choose. That's right. You get to pick your rank in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's the balance of our lesson today on the Shepherd King. Here we go. So Salmon, the father of who? Boaz. Boaz. This is the story of Ruth and Boaz. So Boaz is the son of Rahab and Salmon. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Isn't this a wonderful genealogy? Because the women in there, which don't normally appear in Jewish genealogies, the women in there help tell us this amazing gospel story, right? And so here's Ruth the Moabitess, a Gentile who's grafted into the line of the Messiah, and she's named Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now tell me, that isn't amazing. It's absolutely amazing when you kind of think, consider it. And so you'll note here that in the opening verses of the book of Matthew, we have David mentioned in verse 1. David again mes- mentioned in the genealogy in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon. He's again mentioned again. And so you get the idea of what's going on here. And then watch what happens with the birth of Jesus. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Where did the two of them live? Nazareth. Nazareth. Any royal palaces there? None. Small village backwater part of Israel. Maybe 50 families total lived on that hill in that village. Maybe 50. So where has the kingdom come to at to this point? Joseph. Joseph's the legal descendant of King David. And he's the humble carpenter of Nazareth. But God remembers. God remembers. So her husband, Joseph, being a just man, was unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of Yahweh, the Lord, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, watch what he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice how the angel calls him by his title, son of David. Isn't that amazing? There's nothing to look at at Joseph that says he's a king. And yet the angel knows exactly who he is. 
She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what Yahweh the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Luke 2. We all know this one. Some of us know this part, know this passage by heart from the King James. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. You can't get your Bible unless you get David. Kind of get the idea here, right? And anybody who, at the time, who's a Jew, who's being, who's being told these things, they're expecting the Messiah to show up and for him to be a son of David. So, he went to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Notice Bethlehem again. He, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. So notice here, Bethlehem, shepherds, David, they're reunited, if you would, in this passage. And that's kind of the whole point. So an angel of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Isn't that fascinating? So there's David in 1 Samuel 16, tending the sheep. He wasn't even invited to the party. And yet he was the actual guest of honor. And so he is anointed. He is now the Messiah. He's one of God's anointed. And we see in motif in the city of Bethlehem, now the city of David, these themes that just point us directly to Jesus. This isn't about you fulfilling a dream destiny. This is about Christ fulfilling his mission to come and die for our sins. To call us back to God. To forgive us, renew us, Lead us so that we may delight in His will and walk in His ways. See, this is what it's all about. Yeah, you, 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 I like the smile. Yeah, you know where I'm getting that from, right? Exactly. So coming back then, we take a look now. So David is now the anointed but not yet consummated king of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Or coronated. Anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel. 
And those of you who know the story, how many times does, does David plot in his heart how to kill Saul so that he could become king? Zero. Zero. So the anointed but not yet coronated king, he submits himself to the reigning king who was established by God. And he takes on the form of a servant. You see it? The anointed but not yet coronated king, we see in kind of type and shadow Jesus' incarnation and how he humbles himself. And he does nothing. He doesn't raise a finger to make himself king. Not one. In fact, He's going to have a couple of very great opportunities to slit the throat of the reigning king, and he will have none of it. Isn't that interesting? No, he doesn't go after his dream destiny. Yeah. So isn't it, and and that, that you think about what faith this takes. I mean, there he is, the anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel. And I want you to think about this. So much of the laments that we see in the Psalms where David cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And he talks about how a band of people have surrounded him and their tongues are like swords to pierce my heart. Or they have dug a pit that I should fall into, but they have fallen into it themselves. You think of all of the really raw emotion and the treachery and the and just the pain and agony that David goes through in this experience, the suffering he goes through, and that suffering ends up being penned in the Psalms, and it ends up prefiguring Christ Himself. And even, there's some of it that is just straight up prophecy regarding Christ. Let me give you an example. Coming back, let's take a look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And in you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. The trouble is near. And there's none to help. Tell me that isn't raw. And so we're going to see with David then this amazing motif, which is then exemplified in the incarnation of Christ, that though he is king, 
He is servant and he is slave. And he does nothing to exalt himself, but waits for God to exalt him. And in the meantime, he is persecuted. He is hunted like a dog. He is made to wander in desert places. He's made to live among his enemies. And his life is always, always, always in danger. Isn't that amazing? Just curious, why is it royalty back in those days didn't really mean anything to the lineage? Look at like the royal family of England or yeah. Saudi Arabia. If you're born in that royal family, you're set for life. You're really fortunate. But yet, royal family in this case, you're still having to be a carpenter and make ends meet. And well, that's with David. Okay, you're gonna. He's anointed, and he's gonna go back to being a shepherd. Okay, he's anointed but not coronated, so he goes back to being a shepherd. Um, but Saul, he's now king. And you're going to note that Saul is going to protect his kingship in the way you've described. And he wants his sons to reign after him. And they're, they're, they're living la vida loca, man. You know, they're, they're set for life like you've talked about. So Jonathan is a fellow who, who literally is you know, part of the right family and doing very well for himself in that sense. Joseph, the lineage, there are so many that have can say that they're descended from King David. Uh, oh, by, by time of Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. The wealth can't be spread to that many. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and then the other thing, there is no wealth to spread. There's no kingdom. There's no kingdom at that point. And then the other thing is, is that although coming through a royal lineage, you're going to have different branches, the question is, is that which of them is the legal heir? When it comes to Joseph, God knows. But here's the interesting thing, is that what we learn from Joseph's genealogy in Matthew is that Joseph's genealogy comes through a fellow who God said he would never allow one of his descendants to be on his throne. So Jesus is not the genetic, the genetic descendant of Joseph. Joseph is his legal father, and which is kind of necessary because technically he's the one who has legal claim to the throne. But Jesus is genetically related to Mary. And what's fascinating about that is that many believe it's her genealogy we see in Luke. And so what's fascinating is is that God fulfills his prophecy by not allowing one of the descendants of this, uh, I think it was Jeroboam, um, oh, I forget his name. But uh, it's like the last the last king of Israel before they're taken into captivity in Babylon. And this fellow, is, God said, none of his descendants will ever sit on the throne. But Mary's descendants, she has, a legal, she has also a legal claim, if you would. Jesus is genetically related to her. So what's funny is, is that Jesus has the legal claim to the throne without the direct genetic lineage to this other fellow. And at the same time, um, God's able to fulfill what seems like an impossible prophecy to fulfill, so, which is kind of fascinating. So there's, a, there's kind of a break in it. So the, that little split in the, in the genealogy between Luke and Matthew opens, up, opens it up for Christ to actually have a, a legitimate claim to the throne and to be a direct descendant of David without God having to renege on his promise to never allow this fellow's descendants to sit on the throne. It's kind of interesting. 
Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mm-hmm. And then in Matthew 27, Verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is that, was Jesus just kind of repeating what David had said? Oh, or was David stating, you know, what Jesus was going to go through? Mm-hmm. Okay. Jesus, when he is on the cross, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, laba sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is a direct quote from Psalm 22. No doubt about it. Now, here's the fun part. Did Jesus cry it out or did he sing it? Because this was a psalm he knew the tune to. Kind of a fascinating thing. All right, now, let's read a little bit more of the psalm. I want you to see how this then directly relates to Christ because you're going to see that there's more to this psalm that we've been looking at. So you are, verse 9, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me to trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. Trouble is near me. There is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roar, a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Isn't that beautiful? So you see here in Psalm 22 that this is a psalm that prophetically is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. Not just in his words but also in the fact that his hands and feet were pierced. And it even goes on to talk about how they divided my clothes and cast lots. It's an amazing psalm. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's so amazing when you put it all together. Yeah, right. And yet David often is writing these psalms out of the anguish of his own experiences. And David is a man who is made to suffer. And so we're going to see then, as the story progresses, that you know we love the story of David and Goliath, and we'll get to that next week. But the story of David, is, from this point forward, is really going to be a story of an anointed, not yet coronated servant king who is eventually exalted by God to the office of king, which is, again, following Christ. He's anointed, not yet coronated, servant who's persecuted and suffers like David. So David's sufferings show in type and shadow what we're to experience. And Psalm 22 it picks up on some of the suffering that David experiences and yet prophetically is pointing all to Christ. So you don't get, you don't get Jesus if you don't get David. And if you think you understand David apart from Jesus, oh my goodness, you've only got like a third of the story. You see, the, the, the two have to be pushed together in motif. Now, the, verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16 then reads, Now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Tough verse. Tough verse for a lot of reasons. Now, oftentimes people mistake, mistakenly believe that Christianity teaches dualism. I don't know if you're familiar with what the term dualism is, but it kind of works this way. 
that within the cosmos of the spiritual realm, there are arrayed kind of equal forces. Equal forces of good versus, and versus evil. And they are pitched in cosmic battle. One trying to get, you know, the, the, get above or get the, get a, you know, claim some victory or advantage over the other. And so they're kind of pitched in this constant tug of war. And, you know, for the most part, it's a stalemate. And sometimes it goes one way and the other times it goes another. And we're kind of stuck in the middle of this cosmic conflict. That's not what Scripture teaches. And this is, this statement, this verse, this passage, teaches us a, a, a passage, that, a concept that is rough to get our minds around. And you kind of see it in the book of Job. In the book of Job, in the opening chapter, you have the angels appearing before God. And who also appears before God? The devil himself. And the devil tells God he's been wandering to and fro over all of the planet, you know, restlessly and whatever. And God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, I hate that guy. You see him swinging his tail with his pitchfork. I just can't stand that guy. You know, and so he says the only reason why he loves you is because you protect him and you've made him wealthy. If you take all of that away, he's going to curse your name. God says, how much you want to bet? <laughs> you know, all right, game on. And then God says, you can bring harm to him, but you cannot do this, that, or the other thing. And you sit there and go, whoa. You mean to tell me the devil can't do anything without God's permission? Yeah. We, we Lutherans talk about it as this. We always remind everybody that the devil is God's devil. And you sit there and going, well, God doesn't tempt anyone. No, he does not. God never tempts anybody. And so the devil wants to be at, these, at this type of work. And so the devil comes knocking on God's door and says, I'd really like to rough up Marilyn Matheson. Can I please do that? And God says, no, nah, not tomorrow. Come, come back in a week. We'll talk. I, I, please, can I make her life miserable? <sighs> okay, you can. But you, can't go, you can only go this far, no farther. It's a tough doctrine. But that's kind of how this plays out. Yes. Is that somewhat like the devil trying to seek favor with God? I can't, I, I am going to say this. I dare not, and I mean this, try to figure out how the devil thinks or operates. He does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Now, we have to make sure it doesn't, it's not that he doesn't allow us to have more than we can handle. I'm pretty convinced that God puts us in all kinds of situations that are way above our head. And there's no way we can get through them. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Been there, done that. I've got the t-shirts. However, it does say in Scripture that we're not tempted beyond what? And that Christ will always provide a rescue in the midst of our temptations. So, you know, we've got to be careful how we think about this. And so this is, this is a tough doctrine. And I don't even know how to properly kind of flesh it out. And I don't like thinking about this. And the reason why is because ultimately when it comes down to, if I'm being made to suffer and the devil is tempting me or the devil is harassing me or the same with you, he hasn't been permitted to do... He hasn't, he's not acting on his own recognizance. God has given him permission to do this. 
Isn't that weird? So, wow. How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long will he taunt me saying, He trusted in the Lord, let him save him? Oftentimes, oftentimes, and there's biblical texts that would back that up, that what we're dealing with oftentimes in these types of sufferings is, is the testing and the tempering of our faith and the further burning away of the dross of our sinful flesh and its desires. And boy, does it stink. Yeah, right. That, and that was the assigned text. I, 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 no one could point to me and say, you cherry-picked that. Nope, it was assigned. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, how Hitchens used to use that story of Job, the book of Job, to show how bad God was, mm-hmm. you know, saying, you're going to go through all this just to win a bet, so God can win a bet or something. This has it all wrong. Yeah. But the fun thing about Hitchens is, is that you have to take away his ability to use God's law against God. See, he's assuming a morality, and he's assuming God's breaking that morality. And it's like, whoa, 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 where'd you get your idea of good and bad from, your idea of good and evil from? Let's, you know, I, I, we need to take a look at your standard where you, and you find out he totally ripped it off from Scripture or from the God, law of God written on his heart. So take away his ability to use morals against God because you're using God's morals against God while denying that he exists. Yeah, that's, that's a silly game. You can't do that. Let's keep reading now. So, spirit of the Lord, Yahweh, departed from Saul. Harmful spirit from Yahweh tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Now, think back to the Looney Tunes commercials. Not commercials, cartoons. You remember Looney Tunes? Bugs Bunny cartoons, some ginormous ape is out of control. And what does Bugs Bunny do? He whips out of nowhere a violin and begins playing. And, and the out of control ape goes, right? And, and Bugs Bunny says, ah, music, it tames the savage beast, right? This is where the, where the idea comes from. But here's the interesting thing. If you know your Bible, you're going to realize it's more than just music. And so you'll note, the anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel, he now is going to be taken into the service of the existing king, and he doesn't really have the best job in the whole world, but (laughs) he's literally working for a crazy guy, you know, (laughs) which is always so fun. So Saul said to the servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and Yahweh is with him. Pretty good resume. So then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. (laughs) Yeah. So the anointed but not yet coronated king of Israel continues his job as shepherd. But then he gets the knock on the door or the knock on the sheep gate, and he's taken into the service of the king. So Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine, 
Hmm, bread and wine. Hmm. They sure do show up a lot in Scripture, don't they? <laughs> so Jesse took a, uh, took a donkey with bread and wine and a young goat, sent them by David, his son, to Saul. David came to Saul, entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. He's a servant in service of the king. He becomes an armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre, and he played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, lest you think that it was just the music that did it, please consult the Psalms. So what do you think David is doing when it's when he's informed, David, he triggered, he's crazy right now, I need your help. Grabs his lyre, and he begins singing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So, what Saul got to hear while David played was the word of God being sung into existence. And it becomes the Psalms. It's not the mere playing of the tune. It's the combination of the Word of God inspired from the heart of David, sung in the presence of Saul, that causes the evil spirit to recede away, disappear, for his mind to be restored. It's great and marvelous when you think about it, right? What a fascinating story. And we've only just scratched the surface. We'll pick this up next week. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ's vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.